This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, I'll discuss efforts to address social determinants of health with John Gorman, chairman of the Nightingale Partners and founder and former executive chairman of Gorman Health Group. John, welcome to the program. Thanks, David. Great to be here, especially with another native D.C. guy. Yeah, you're most welcome. John's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has exposed the country's failure to adequately address the social determinants of health generally defined as health access and quality, education, economic circumstances, food security, social conditions, and environmental factors. It is estimated that where people live, work, and socialize determines as much as 60% of their health status, whereas formal medical care accounts for just 10%. For example, concerning economic circumstances, 40 years of wage stagnation among lower-income earners has left 45% of working-age Americans with either no health care insurance or insurance without a pocket expenses so high they avoid seeking care when, for example, they develop COVID-19 related symptoms. Healthcare policymakers have slowly begun to take an interest in addressing SDOHs as a way to improve health delivery by increasing or increasing appropriate utilization and reducing costs. For example, Medicare Advantage plans, which enroll more than one-third of all Medicare beneficiaries, have recently been given regulatory authority to offer MA beneficiaries supplemental benefits beyond medical care, such as meal deliveries, home modifications, and personal care services. With me again to discuss addressing social determinants, specifically use of what are termed opportunity zones, is again John Gorman. So John, with that as background, let me begin by asking if you could provide a brief overview of Nightingale. Sure, David. Uh, Nightingale Partners is uh, one of these weird opportunity zone funds that came out of Trump's big tax giveaway bill. Uh, it was actually uh, Cory Booker's program that was designed to uh, encourage investment in real estate and disadvantaged communities. And um, I was sitting on my ass retired <laughs> last spring and um, got a notification that the IRS had just completely revamped the regs to allow Opportunity Zone capital to be used, not just for real estate investment, but also for leases, but more importantly, for working capital or for meeting the business requirements of a new company inside one of the 9,000, roughly 9,000 Opportunity Zones around the country. And those Opportunity Zones, David, are all severely economically disadvantaged and more importantly medically underserved and because the irs allowed now opportunity zone capital to be used for working capital or for meeting business requirements that's what opened the door to allow us to use opportunity zone capital to make large-scale investments in social determinant of health interventions so uh, nightingale partners with insurers, with health systems, with large medical groups to finance, design, uh, launch, and where necessary, uh, execute on uh, our goals to improve 
uh, the quality of care for really vulnerable populations in this country. A lot of people uh, like to say, and I love it, that we hacked a Republican billionaire tax shelter in order to improve care for black and brown people. And that gets me up every morning. <laughs> well, thank you. So this, as you noted, this was a provision in the December 17 tax bill, uh, yep. specifically uh, page 130. Uh, this was picked up. This was previous legislation, as you noted, uh, that, as you mentioned, uh, the senator from New Jersey, Cory Booker, but also the South Carolina African-American Republican, the only one, uh, Tim Scott. So um, uh, this was picked up in the tax bill, previous legislation. And you mentioned the 9,000. So these are census tracts that meet this low-income community criteria. Right. Um, and then explain to me, governors then have to select a discrete number um, that could benefit from this uh, uh, tax advantage program. Is that correct? That's correct. And there was a little bit of mischief by some of the governors in the designation of some of those areas. And there's been, you know, some gamesmanship with this authority, like, you know, Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, is, you know, used an opportunity zone fund to open up a freaking laundromat in Asbury Park with Bruce Springsteen. That's not the kind of stuff that we do. <laughs> well, I'm not surprised to hear that. I guess uh, the former governor is a is obsessed with uh, uh, Mr. Asbury Park. Yes, um, he is. And again, uh, just so on the, to understand better or more clearly, this is uh, the tax advantage here is that by investing the, the the capital gains on your investment, you can avoid paying the the 23 percent the uh, capital gains tax tax. Right. And then so basically, yeah, sure. Go I'm ahead. Sorry, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, basically, the way it works is that if you invest money or capital gains in an opportunity zone and you leave it in for at least 10 years, not only is the initial investment completely tax free, but then all of the proceeds that you make on that investment are completely tax free. So high net worth individuals and family offices and large corporations that generate large amounts of capital gains love this program. And indeed, it opened up about $6.2 trillion in available capital uh, based on the amount of capital gains that we generate in our economy. So um, of that amount, David, roughly uh, $100 billion has been invested thus far uh, into opportunity zones uh, in a, the roughly 18 months that the program's been operating. And again, the idea is the longer you leave the money, I mean, it's completely tax-free for 10 years, yes. but it's step seven years you pay or you're 85% excused. But I, yeah. that, that number surprises me. Would you say this, this amount, this $100 billion is far more than was estimated when uh, the legislation was passed? No, I think it's probably rolling out slower than uh, a lot of folks had hoped. Um, and as you can imagine, the vast majority of those deals that have been done thus far have been around real estate and real estate redevelopment. Um, certainly in the healthcare sector, I think we're still the only firm out here that's a healthcare-focused opportunity zone fund. Uh, it, you know, it's, it, it, we've been the only ones thus far, to my knowledge. So we're, you know, we're grinding away here, but we, we have yet to even break uh, a billion, but we're, that's our goal. Okay, so let's get into the actual uh, program other than the, um, the, the policy. 
So you describe a work, a social determinant work around food security, housing, transportation, et cetera. Sure. Could you explain? Uh, I'd like to get in the meat of these, so uh, feel free to explain a, a few of these. Uh, could you explain to me where these are happening, why, and, and, and how do they work? Sure. Well, start. let's start first with the research. And, you know, the evidence is, is very uh, dominant that just shows that investing in social determinants of health dramatically reduces healthcare costs. Um, and indeed, it's been shown that social determinants account for 60% of healthcare spending in this country. And among seniors, it's more like 80%. Um, and I mean, let's just get real, David. I mean, social determinants are just four fancy words for poverty. And it's worth pointing out that the one stat we didn't talk about at the top in your background is that since COVID swept this country, 8 million more Americans uh, are now in poverty. Right. And yes. People are saying they slipped into poverty. No, they were pushed into poverty, as Hillary Clinton said yesterday, and she was exactly right. And, um, you know, what, this is really about the effect of our fraying social safety net and uh, what it means for healthcare costs. And I think it's become a critical issue now in the health insurance industry. And indeed, it's leading to an arms race among uh, a lot of the major payers around social determinants, because the research clearly shows that um, you get a consistent three to eight X return on investment on interventions into social determinants uh, in terms of reduced healthcare costs. Uh, and in fact, in some of the most landmark studies, that it's been far greater. Let me give you an example. Geisinger Health System up in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. where President uh, Obama is speaking today as we we're recording this, um, Geisinger uh, found that it was spending about $300,000 per patient per year on their uncontrolled elderly diabetics. Mm -hmm. Okay, so these are folks that were just showing up at the hospital needing foot amputations and just massive intervention after the fact because their diabetes was uncontrolled. So they started a medically appropriate meal delivery service for them. And within 14 months, they dropped their average cost down to $48,000 per patient per year. So net of the cost of the meals prepared, packaged, and delivered, they saved $192,000 per patient per year. And they've sustained those savings uh, over an expansion population that they immediately jumped into when they saw those results. That is a 35x return on investment, mm -hmm. David. And that, to a guy like me, is an investable event. And so our interventions that we finance and then design and execute on with our insurer partners are really designed around meeting the basic human needs that folks need to be you know, engaged consumers and patients uh, and compliant in their healthcare treatments. We really subscribe for all the policy wonks out there, especially the, uh, the public health nerds among us. We really subscribe to Maslow's hierarchy, David. And Maslow's hierarchy shows that, you know, in the pyramid of human need, at the very bottom is food, security, and shelter. And above that, two steps above that, is healthcare. 
And Maslow's hierarchy shows us that you cannot expect somebody whose basic human needs are not getting met to then be an engaged and compliant patient at the same time. That only once their, their basic needs of food, shelter, and security are met can you ever have any hope of them being engaged patients. And that's why you see such a huge return uh, from investments in things like food security or medically appropriate meals for diabetics at Geisinger or for transportation to uh, doctor's appointments to even just assigning uh, a community health worker who's basically just a, you know, a social worker without the license, but who grew up and knows the community in which she works. And she serves as like a navigator to patients with um, multiple comorbidities and social determinants at work. So all of those interventions that I just mentioned um, consistently show these huge returns, like just a community health worker consistently shows a $2,200 per patient per year savings uh, net uh, just by deploying her to the field and paneling her to uh, a group of needy, vulnerable patients. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Thank okay. you. And in fact, um, on on the food security issue, I actually did, and you mentioned in your materials, the Commonwealth Care Alliance in Massachusetts. And right. I did interview a year or so ago the CEO thereof, and he did discuss this. Chris Palmieri, yes, one of my ab- best friends. Absolutely. He discussed, yeah. discussed this as well. Um, and actually, several years ago, I did interview a professor – uh, and North Carolina on community health workers. Mm-hmm. Let me, since you mentioned shelter under Maslow's hierarchy, you yeah. do also provide examples or discuss homelessness and that issue. Um, and you know, efforts by Montefiore and others. Can you yeah. uh, highlight some of that work? Absolutely. I mean, homelessness and, and housing as healthcare has some of the longest and best returns in terms of investments um, uh, as an intervention. So, you know, and this is particularly salient now, David, of course, because Congress has completely failed to extend the eviction moratorium. And, um, you know, it's, it's really important to also point out that the leading cause of homelessness in the United States tends to be utility debt that leads to the greatest number of evictions and then on to uh, either temporary or permanent homelessness in this country. So, um, it's an epidemic in this country, and as an investor, it holds some of the greatest returns, um, but it also is the one that tends to be most capital intensive and the longest time to market. So the challenge when you're an investor in this kind of stuff is, you know, how do you bring uh, housing units or housing supports to bear as quickly as possible, especially for the most vulnerable populations within the homeless uh, group. And, um, you know, because they're, they're not homogenous at all. And so they need different solutions based on what got them into homelessness to begin with. Um, so as you think of it, you know, and you look at all the research, it consistently shows that you can generate at least 2500 to $10,000 per patient per year net of the cost of housing uh, by just getting homeless people uh, indoors and getting them into a safe place. Um, similar with that, you find that uh, homelessness prevention can be very cost effectively be done 
by subsidizing utilities and uh, and providing rent subsidies or just helping people get signed up for Section 8 housing, housing. subsidies. Um, so generally, the first step that you want to take with the homeless population is to just sign them up for everything that they're eligible for. Um, because those social welfare programs uh, are there for a reason. They are absolutely under assault by this administration, but uh, the Community Development Block Grant is really the, the leading uh, funding source of, of interventions for the homeless uh, today. Now, the work that we do with insurers on homelessness really is where you get into how you target subgroups within the homeless to figure out how you stage these interventions. Because like I said, building actual long-term affordable housing units or supportive housing units can take years when you're dealing with, you know, Byzantine zoning and, and districting requirements for this stuff. You're dealing with NIMBY politics by, you know, uh, neighbors that just don't want this stuff in their backyard mm -hmm. um, and then licensing and everything else. Um, it can take years to bring those units online. So typically the approach that we like to take is we go in with analytics first and we go screening the homeless population to see how we, we can bisect the market and figure out who's in greatest need and try to deal with them first. In a recent project we were doing in Los Angeles, we found that the folks that were in greatest need and that who we could intervene the fastest with, interestingly, was newly emancipated foster kids, David. And, um, you know, this is one subgroup of the population that is absolutely most vulnerable because they hit 18 years old. Mm -hmm. The state stops paying the foster family. They put the kid out. Now they're 18, no skills, no money, no place to go. In Los Angeles, 80% of those kids become homeless, permanently homeless, uh, and are um, either opioid addicted or being trafficked or both within six months of their emancipation. So we focused on the foster kids first, and we said, we got to get these kids off the street immediately. And so this was right at the beginning of the pandemic. We went to purveyors of long-term corporate housing. We were just dying because nobody was traveling anymore for business. Mm -hmm. And we went to Candlewood Suites, and we went to um, uh, Extended Stay America. And we said, can you guys make beds available for 18-year-olds that, you know, don't have any serious affective disorders or substance abuse disorders. They just got no place else to go. And would you make these suites available for these kids? We'll pay you slightly more than your rack rate, but you need to take them for at least a year. They said, hell yes. And in the second meeting, we had about a thousand suites uh, made open for those kids. And, and we got, we got uh, a couple of thousands of those kids housed and they're, they're still housed just by doing that. So there's a high degree of innovation that you got to take with this population because the, the needs within the population can be so varied. You know, then you're dealing with, say, the, the chronically homeless population, and they're chronically homeless because of affective behavioral health disorders or for severe substance abuse issues or alcoholism. Man, the, the suite of interventions that you've got to do on that population is dramatically different than just a low-income working family that got evicted because they couldn't pay their utilities and now they're living out of their cars. And there are very different things that we do for those subsections of the, the homeless population. Make sense? Yes, absolutely. And in okay. fact, uh, I have also interviewed uh, the National Healthcare for the Homeless 
organization folks, and you're right, there is a constellation of problems with the chronic homeless, particularly um, resulting from mental behavioral health issues, as you yeah. note. Let me, I'd be remiss if I didn't. I, I do want to get this question, important question in, and that is how do, I mean, you obviously are promoting opportunity zones, uh, but how sure. do how do providers who are, say, in a pay-for-performance model um, or not, you know, maybe they also contract with MA or the, regards their fee-for-service, they yeah. have commercial... Yeah. Uh, you know, they have a suite of payers in their portfolio, but how do, how do they proactively engage on this? And let's start, let's start with the provider community. Well, I mean, certainly a, a medical group or a health system could open up its own opportunity zone fund. And in fact, we've been talking to some of the trade associations about that as a, as a strategy. Um, certainly if they're for-profit organizations, uh, or they all have, you know, wealthy donors who are high net worth individuals and family offices and corporations that contribute on a philanthropic basis. You know, they all have capital gains and uh, a, a large medical group or a health system could absolutely set up their own opportunity zone fund um, and and then channel uh, capital through that fund into interventions like we do. Or they could call us and we'll help them with it. Mm-hmm. Um but the key thing, you know, especially when you're bringing in outside investors, David, is never forget who the customer is. I mean, these guys want their money back right. and they want their money back with a spiff. You know, they're, if they're putting money into an opportunity zone fund, maybe for, you know, in our experience, about 30, 40 percent of them are in it for the cause. Most of them are in it for the money and for the tax shelter and you know on most of our projects you know we have to we haven't yet produced an investor prospectus that had less than a 30 percent internal rate of return and then what the opportunity zone gives you is another roughly 315 to 365 basis points in improvement on that margin okay so if a provider organization is going to open up its own opportunity zone fund, they have to be very cognizant from the jump mm-hmm. that they're going to be taking in wealthy people's money or wealthy corporations money and that they will expect a return. They also want nice things that they can say in their quarterly report about results, but they're in it for the money for the most part. And that means that you have to target these investments to the populations that are greatest in greatest need. And secondly, who are most impactable, David, mm-hmm. you know, that's why like chronically homeless populations are tough because they have to be, you know, engaged participants in the intervention for us to get the shared savings that we then use or any opportunity zone fund investing in this stuff would use to repay their investors. So that means you got to have really good analytics. You know, you got to target to, you know, who are the patients that need this the most? Uh, who is most impactable, and then executing on on these types of investments is, man, it's just a lot of moving parts with a whole lot of providers that most healthcare organizations historically have run from like scalded dogs, David. You know, like right, right. When, when have you seen like a health system until relatively recently start looking for partners like Meals on Wheels? Or, uh, you know, working with uh, with uh, some church van transportation group so that they can start shuttling 
their patients to and from their appointments or to a pharmacy or to, you know, even just a grocery store if they live in a food desert. You know, so all of these things have to be considered if you're going to jump into this. Um, but, you know, by all means, anybody can open up their own Opportunity Zone fund. Just like I said, don't forget who the end user is and that, you know, the bill will come due to those investors and you've got to be able to deliver. Right. I'm not your your answer doesn't surprise me on the from the provider's perspective. Historically, this would be considered adverse selection in a sure. sense. And we well, love adverse selection. That's our whole business. Right. Right. And they and from the on the numbers from the investor side, this, this, this sounds like your class. The numbers certainly sound like a classic private equity um, interest. Well, in a way it is. I mean, but the only difference really between an opportunity zone fund and say venture capital or a private equity fund is that we have to disperse the money within six months of raising it. So, you know, we have to maintain this syndicate of about 60 large investors. And when we get a project developed and we get the prospectus done, we throw it over the wall to our head of investor relations and he goes out and shops it. We got to do that on every goddamn project because the, the money has to be out the door six months after we close the fund. So this stuff moves at light speed if you're an opportunity zone fund. And it means you got to have a really steady pipeline of projects that are almost shovel ready uh, Mm -hmm. to throw over to the wall to your investors next. And I'm assuming that's a prerequisite under the, under the law that the money can't, the money can't sit around. No, right. No, it's, it says in the law, it's got to be dispersed within six months. So that presents its own challenges. You know, we can't be like a private equity fund that goes out and raises, you know, a billion dollars for its its next uh, its next round of investments. We have to go out and raise the money investment or project by project. Mm-hmm. OK, let me on the on the payer side, um, I'm curious uh, to know. And I did mention in the intro, uh, Medicare Advantage has been incented somewhat down this path yep. by expanding supplemental benefits, yes. which again, I noted there was some research published last year around to the extent to which MA plans have taken advantage of this. This was yeah. research published in JAMA and it was pretty sobering to the extent that largely their finding was plans were thinking about it. I think would yeah. be a fair assessment. Yeah, I agree. Um, what, what, what appetite do you sense, mm. uh, amongst the, for example, the MA commercial plans or other commercial plans uh, relative to these opportunity zones? Well, let's first talk about the slow uptake on Mm -hmm. these supplemental benefits, because frankly, it was that policy change that I I thought it was one of the biggest policy changes in Medicare in in 15 years, Um, at least. It was huge development. Um, And then the reasons why the plans have been really slow in uptake are, are... are very particular and unique to Medicare Advantage. What CMS did was they said that you could start to offer these benefits that, um, you know, would reduce the cost of care, that would improve the quality of care, and that, you know, aren't necessarily, you know, direct clinical services, okay? Mm -hmm. And But then what they did was they didn't put any additional money in for it, okay? So then it it became incumbent on the plans that if you're going to take them up on this, and you're going to invest in this stuff and, and put new benefits like vision, hearing, dental, or uh, home health aid for a year if you need one on the street, 
the plans looked at themselves and they said, you know, we largely live in Medicare Advantage in a zero premium environment. And so this means for every dollar we would invest in housing homeless patients is maybe a dollar we may have to charge beneficiaries for our policy. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want to impact their competitiveness. And so they only really kind of stuck their toe in the waters over this last couple of years. Now, some have been bolder than others. You know, Anthem went out last year and again in 21 with a with a pretty interesting package of benefits that included everything from, uh, you know, home health assistance to uh, an annual allowance for uh, for home uh, improvements like installing ramps or bumpers or railings to prevent falls um, and things of that sort. Um, but those benefits were pretty limited. It was clear that they were experimental and that, you know, Anthem was using it to sort of see what consumer preferences has been. But the reason that the plans haven't really taken this stuff up is that for every dollar they would spend is one less dollar that makes them less competitive in their monthly premium, David. And that's what drives the whole Medicare Advantage world. That's what born, what brought Nightingale to birth more than anything. Because our whole operating premise when I started the company was they didn't give any new money to these plans to do this. So if we bring other people's money to the dance, then wouldn't that accelerate the adoption and the offering of these benefits on a much broader scale? Mm-hmm. And we are finding that that is holding through. true, though uh, COVID definitely set us back a good five months in our business cycle. And, you know, we find that uh, plans welcome the opportunity to bring in external third-party capital for these types of investments that now they all really want to do, but they just didn't want to put their own money on the block for it because they'd have their chief actuary sitting there tapping his foot saying, you're killing us in the market if you do this. You follow me? And and another adverse selection concern. So basically exactly. what, what you're doing and the reason I brought up the uh, change in supplemental MA benefits is you're connecting the dots between the 17 provision and what CMS did on supplemental benefits. Yes. And then I went and looked out for what are the best sources of alternative capital that could fill this gap that CMS created in 2017 by not funding these right. new benefits. And so, you know, for a couple of years, I chased these social impact bonds. And those people just drove me crazy, man. I mean, I must have had 45 or 50 meetings with social impact bond financiers. They didn't understand what the hell I was talking about. You know, these are guys that are funding stuff like digging wells in Africa. And all that's great. But they had no idea about how to wrap their head around domestic healthcare investments in partnership with payers to reduce healthcare costs. So, you know, I was, like I said, I, I had sold Gorman Health Group in 18. I was sitting on my ass retired in 19 when I got this notification about the Opportunity Zone program. And I, you know, I, I will admit, as a, as a true blue Democrat, I had not really looked at anything that came out of Trump's tax bill. But when I saw this notification come over, I said, ah, shit, you know, it's time that I dig into this. And the more I looked at it, the more I'm slapping my forehead going, oh, shit, this is perfect. And it's even a 10-year investment horizon. It's a long put. It's a long-term put. This suits our purpose, purposes perfectly. And so, yeah, Nightingale was born last April, thanks to these two several policy changes. Well, John, uh, my congratulations. We're at our time. Unfortunately, I, I wouldn't 
I'd enjoy maybe extending this conversation to talk about related. I don't know if you get into green sure. bonds, but there are all there are all sorts of related instruments now yeah. out there for social purposes or causes. But this is yes. a very good overview of this program that, candidly, I've seen very little uh, media attention or very little discussion sure. uh, in in amongst healthcare policy folks. And in fact, relative to my day job, I've never heard this discussed amongst any of our clients, which are larger um, uh, hospital-led organizations. Um, so I do right. appreciate your, your offering to discuss this in some detail. So with that, John, I thank you very much. Always a pleasure, David. Sure. Happy to talk further on any of this stuff. If you like, just give us a call. You know the number. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.